So welcome to everybody. <laughs> Those of you who are pajama people, I haven't used that phrase in here a long time. Yeah. You who are in other parts of the world. I know we have some people who watch whether live stream or later in Scotland. Mm. And I don't, I haven't checked analytics in a while. Have you? I haven't seen, in a while. I know we have people in um, the Carolinas who watch and California who watch and all over. Hope it does the world Someone's some good. Someone's son in the Philippines. There is. A member mm -hmm. of our church has a son in the Philippines, and he watches. Mm -hmm. So, welcome to everybody. Yeah. So, let's begin, as we do. Um, if you would just take a moment to take a deep breath and be silent and be here. So may we deepen our awareness that we live in the sacred heart of sacred mystery and that this mystery seeks to find expression through who we are and how we live. So somebody brought me this bowl from India. Mm. And can you read Sanskrit or whatever that oh, is? Oh, yes. It says you translate it's really it? actually a bad joke in Sanskrit. I can't if you don't it stop it. <laughs> oh, my. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So the title that we have given this time today is Faith Over Fear and Abundant Life Over Religion. Because I think that that's the primary message of this story that we're going to deal with in the Gospel of John today. I think it's its primary message, not the only one. So I, I think it might be best um, to read part of this story, talk a bit about our context, and uh, make some observations about how this story is relevant for us in our lives. So during the time that Jesus was alive and having his ministry, he was an obnoxious, in-your-face kind of person. He didn't speak to those who were high in the religious establishment. He spoke to the people who were the dispossessed, the poor, uh, those who had been outcast from the community. Um, people would try to confront Jesus. They would try to challenge him. And he'd just dish it right back. For example, once a member of the religious establishment seeking to justify himself, according to the text, asked Jesus, what are the great laws in the Jewish religion? And Jesus never answers a question directly. He says, well, what do you think? And the guy says, well, the great commandments are that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, bingo, you got it. 
And the guy not being satisfied said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus told this story that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it was such an upsetting story to the people to whom he told it that they wanted to kill him. Now, we greet it as a nice little story to tell our kids in Sunday school. It doesn't have the impact on us now that it had on those who uh, first heard it. So the parable that you're about to hear today has the same outcome. Um, this story infuriated people so much, as you'll find out today, that at the end of the transaction, they wanted to kill Jesus. And indeed, this parable sets up the readers or the people who had never heard anything about Jesus and they're just hearing the story for the first time, it sets them up to begin to anticipate that Jesus is indeed going to be executed. Now, we don't know precisely what created this parable, the circumstances that created this parable. Uh, we can guess, but um, the Johannine community was a community of people who attracted others into their community because they were fearless, they were joyful, they were loving, they were generous, among other things. And they were not only persecuted by the Roman government because they would not give their ultimate allegiance to Caesar, but they were also extruded from the church that gave them birth, not church, but a synagogue. They were extruded from that because of the insights that they had gained into what life and God and forgiveness and faith were all about. We've been talking about that stuff leading up to this. So someone might have asked, well, who is this Jesus fellow? And um, what is his relevance for me? Now, the, again, keep in mind the cultural context in which this story was created, a time of great controversy, a time of great division. We live in a time of controversy and division. And this story is a parable about that controversy. And because Jesus is such a lawbreaker, it begins to prepare the way, as I said, for the crucifixion of Jesus. So um, I'm going to read the story to you, and then Holly is going to tell you every, every meaning that this story could possibly have, and we will just sit in rapt attention. That's exactly how it's going to go. That's exactly how it's going to go. It's a great story, but then remember, it's, not, it's a parable. Don't take it as a literal thing. So soon another feast came around, and Jesus was back in Jerusalem. In John, unlike in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Jesus goes to Jerusalem a lot. He's in and out, in and out, in and out of Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool in Hebrew called Bethesda with five alcoves. Hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed, were in these alcoves. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he'd been there, he said, Do you want to get well? The sick man said, Sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. By the time I get there, somebody else is already in. Jesus said, Get up, 
Take up your bedroll and start walking. The man was healed on the spot. He picked up his bedroll and walked off. Now that day happened to be the Sabbath. The Jews stopped the healed man and said, It's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bedroll around. It's against the rules. But he told them, The man who made me well told me to. He said, Take your bedroll and start walking. They asked, Who gave you the order to take it up and start walking? But the healed man didn't know, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. A little later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, You look wonderful. You're well. Don't return to a sinning life or something worse might happen. The man went back and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's why the Jews were out to get Jesus, because he did this kind of thing on the Sabbath. But Jesus defended himself. My father's working straight through, even on the Sabbath, and so am I. Oh, that really set them off. The Jews were now not only out to expose him, they were out to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father. He was putting himself on a level with God. It's a great story. Mm -hmm. It is a good story. And just like today, you've pointed out so, many, so often how similar these times are to the controversy and the conflict that were in the early Christian movement in which the joining community formed. Mm -hmm. This story for me has three primary threads. These aren't the only threads, <laughs> but the, in a broad sense, I see it as moving from death to life. The threads for me are about languishing, fierce love, and about a choice. Just under a year ago, the New York Times published an article titled, There's a name for the blah you're feeling. It's called languishing. Did anyone read it? Yeah, it was a good article. And then uh, on the other end of that, there was another article towards the end of last year called um, The Other Side of Languishing is Flourishing. But psychologists named languishing the dominant emotion of 2021. I would venture to say since 2020, we've kind of been languishing. It's not quite depression. It's not quite hopelessness. But it is somewhat joyless, somewhat aimless, stagnant, and empty. It is the absence of absolute well-being. And the article says, it feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Sounds about right. How many of us wore sweatpants or pajamas on the bottom over the last couple years with a blouse on top? I'm like, did I remember to change today? Um, how many of us drank coffee well into the afternoon and then switched right over to, <laughs> to whatever you have at night? How many of us let that well-intentioned starter, that uh, sourdough starter go bad, right? All the projects that I wanted to do with my kids three times a week, those kind of fell by the wayside. A lot of incomplete ideas. We've dealt with a lot of intense fear and grief and confusion over the last 22 months, and it's not just because of COVID, although it's a large part. Recently, uh, in November or December, I saw Trevor Noah live, who I love. I just think he's such a smart comedian. And he talked about, he made the analogy of the end of a war. So some of you might even recall this iconic photo taken on uh, the victory in Japan Day in 1945 at the end of World War II. And it echoes the American sentiments at the end of this long, horrific, uncertain time. But there was an end to it. People got to celebrate and wave their kerchiefs in the street. They 
kissed complete strangers, which we can't even dream of hugging a complete stranger right now. So Trevor Noah made the point that we haven't had our armistice day. We haven't had our chance to kind of wave our arms in ecstasy or hug one another at the end of something because we haven't seen an end. It's sort of just languishing forward. We keep kind of plodding forward, wondering about the end and whether it's just going to kind of taper out or how long we'll have to live with this sort of uncertainty or make some kind of normal life in spite of it. I relate to the languishing. I don't know how many of you in here do, but I feel as if the last two years have been dog years. I can't quite, you know, dogs are set, have seven years for every one human year. So if you ask me when something happened, I'm like somewhere between two and 15 years ago, I, I don't know. If you told me it had been 38 years, like the man by the pool, I might believe you. The man in the story that Jesus, that we hear is languishing. It's said that one of the best strategies for managing emotions is to name them, that the second you name them, they start to just discharge from the body and the healing begins. It helps us to find resonance and then again, like that, that kind of healing. Many have been taught to minimize or ignore their emotions. I think that is a very specifically American thing to be, to, to be oh, I'm fine, I'm just fine. When we're asked, guess what? Fine is not a feeling. Fine is not a feeling. But when we name how we feel, we can then begin to proceed. The man by the pool is someone who, when asked, might have not been able to say how he felt. He is likely complicit with his own suffering, likely in denial of what got him there. 38 years is a long time to sit by a pool and wait for someone to help you. Denial may have been protective to him at one point, maybe as a child, but at some point it kept him separate and alone and unengaged with life. So John Sanford says in his mystical Christianity book that he's probably suffering from some kind of psychosomatic illness. And these are illnesses that mask emotional distress, but they come out through the body. The body speaks what the mouth cannot. Sanford also mentions um, the psychologist Fritz Kunkel, his work on ego defenses that limit development. So ego defenses that we sort of acquire as children that then become part of how we behave as adults. He has four types, and they are the star, who is usually a gifted child with indulging parents, used to being the best at everything. As they grow up, they primarily fear failure or being ordinary, and they miss out on being loved for who they are. The clinging vine is a, a shy child with indulging partners, or parents, sorry, who avoids responsibility by being dependent on them and misses out on taking initiative and having confidence. They grow up to fear abandonment. The bully or the tyrant is an energetic kid who has very demanding or harsh parents, and trust is often broken by cruelty. The child learns to enact that cruelty and achieves power to survive. As a grown-up, they hide their insecurities, become very attached to being right, and they fear loss of control. And then there's the turtle, a shy kid with demanding parents. Life is often overwhelming and scary, so they withdraw to protect. They hide from life and lack ambition. They fear being challenged and being found inadequate. The paralytic is most likely a turtle 
who has never really chosen life. We see this in the response that he gives to the authorities once Jesus commands him to walk. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. So I I had a friend uh, years ago. I mean, he's still my friend. (laughs) But uh, I borrowed a phrase from him when people would ask him, how you doing? He'd say, never been better. And so I decided to start using that. And I got the same response from most people to making that comment uh, as I I get when I tell people that we have a moral obligation to be happy. Hmm. You know, they say, well, you're just not paying attention. Ah. Or you don't know what's really going on or something like that. Or maybe it's precisely because you're paying attention. Maybe. Maybe. Things couldn't be better. (laughs) <laughs> given everything. So I want to make some general observations about, about this story. This paralyzed man is a stand-in for the Jewish community that could not or would not adapt to the expansive vision in life and living that Jesus presented. They wouldn't stand to the occasion. Now you notice that in this story, the paralyzed man did nothing to facilitate his own cure. Uh, he didn't seek out Jesus. Jesus sought him out. Um, not only that, but for 38 years, he'd shown no initiative to get better or to demonstrate any desire to get better. He, he showed a chronic inability to seize the opportunity and to move into new life. Further... He turns on the one who healed him. Okay? Now, this is a parable, remember, about the synagogue community. And it's also a parable about us on more times than we care to admit. Right? Now, you remember the first sign story was? Hmm. Has to do with drinking? Yeah. Turning water into wine. (laughs) Yeah. So the water shows up in this story, too. Mm -hmm. The, the, the water that Jesus turned into wine was seven stone jars set aside for purification. The pools at the corners of the temple were set aside for purification. So the water in both these stories doesn't do anybody any good. So the point of the story is the water can't do anything but Jesus can. Now, we're going to get into miracles in two weeks. We'll talk about miracles. And the fact that uh, one of the five fundamentals of contemporary Christian fundamentalism is that you have to believe in the literal nature of miracles, which robs them, I think, of their, their meaning. So in the first part of the story, Jesus comes, he heals a guy, gets him up walking, and then he disappears. And the authorities show up and they confront the man who's carrying a bedroll. And they say to him, what in tarnation do you think you're doing? Carrying this bedroll on the Sabbath. And he says, I'm just following orders. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. You remember the defense that people gave about what happened during the Holocaust? Mm. We're just following order, just doing what people told us to. 
Stanley Milgram, the sociologist, the psychologist at mm -hmm. Harvard, mm -hmm. did this pioneering experiment where he showed that morally upright, really good people will do really horrendous things mm -hmm. when they think the stakes are high enough. Just didn't know what I was told to do, following the rules. We can easily give in to authority when we fear the consequences of what might happen if we don't do that. So another observation I have about this parable is that um, here, new life and wholeness threaten religious rules of the past. And then there are these lines a little later in the story. A little later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, You look wonderful. You're well. Don't return to a sinning life for something worse by ha might happen. Now, I want to be really crystal, crystal clear, very clear, that Jesus never at any point in his ministry connects something, that tragic, something tragic that happens in somebody's life to how they behave. As a matter of fact, <coughs> in other places, he goes out of his way to dispel that. What he's saying in this incident is, don't sink back into your fears and behaviors of the past. Choose faith over fear. Choose life over religion. Well, the authorities, the religious authorities, didn't like this. Not in the least. Because their whole religious structure was built on the belief that one could be made whole by not breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. Richard Rohr says that his image of Jesus is of this guy who lays around in a hammock six days a week <laughs> doing nothing. And then on the Sabbath, he just gets up and gets busy. And he goes about eating with the wrong people, not washing his hands, healing people, saying outrageous things, all on the Sabbath. Because he's a rule breaker. Hmm. That would come to be one of the reasons that, that, that the people in this Johannine community came to understand the death of Jesus. Jesus was crucified, executed, because he was a rule breaker. Part of the message of Jesus in John is that the light of the world is extinguished by the darkness in a world where God has been reduced to any of the false beliefs we have about God. Things like we understand God. Things like God is on our side or any other idolatrous nonsense that we can come up with. The people in the Johannine community affirmed that Jesus is part of who God is and that God cannot be contained in any form created by human minds or human hands. And yet we keep falling for that over and over and over and over and over and over, thinking, I've come up with the right creed now. I got it figured out. So we'll get to talk more about that 
next week, but it is so hard to imagine something that we have no experience of. Reimagining God is exactly what Jesus asks us to do in so many ways throughout the storytelling. And the arc of Jesus' teaching seemed to be about choosing a full and meaningful life, practicing unconditional love, and bringing forth that light from within that will heal you. Should we talk about the Gospel of Thomas? Sure. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I actually thought about, I haven't mentioned it to you yet, yeah. but I've thought about the Gospel of Thomas a lot yeah. in connection with this uh, speech that we're going to get into next yeah. week that Jesus gives. That um, how it, 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 The Gospel of Thomas is much more uh, explicit and mysterious about mm-hmm. what it means to cross over into God. Yes, and my favorite piece of that is if you bring forth what is within you, it will it will save you. And that is what I think Jesus says over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and what I think that means, which yeah. we'll amplify on next week, is that Jesus taught, as all other great spiritual teachers do, is that we already have within us what we need. Yes. We just need to develop the faith to access that. Yeah. But to Jesus, I think that unconditional love was not this kind of soft and mushy, oh, you know, let me just roll over and give you what you need. It's not permissive, but it's forthright and it's bold. It's what I call fierce love. And this is the kind of love that causes him to say, come on, man, get up and walk. Take your bedroll, get up and walk. Sometimes we need that push, right, for someone to tell us, just do what you know you need to do. So speaking of Franz Kunkel, he also wrote about the importance of feeling connected, part of a whole to our development, part of the community is integral to our development. He wrote that the real self is not I, but we. We exist in relation to one another. The we is constructed of many, many, many eyes. Community shapes our identity, and ideally, we get to be brought up in a community that loves us into our whole being. I would venture to say that many of us aren't. We get pieces of it, but we seek out that community that will love us for who we are. And when the community languishes, the individual does too. A healthy community is not complicit with anything other than the expression of one's true self. So allows for that individual to be developed with loving hands. This is what I love about Jesus. I think he has this remarkable ability to simultaneously accept people exactly where they are and to also refuse to let them be anything other than who they are meant to become. Of course, we are all works in progress. We are on this journey. But the invitation issued here is for us to actively participate in seeking out ourselves, seeking the process of becoming whole. Jesus, as Bill said, was stubbornly committed to this kind of fierce love. I will not let you be anything less than who you are. Now get up and walk. Jesus initiates and brings forth that healing from within. I'm going to guess that hundreds, if not thousands of people, I don't know how big that town was, but many people passed this man, this paralytic, by the pool. It's not like he wasn't there for 38 years, right? Maybe at first they engaged with him or pitied him, or maybe they even feared him a little bit, like, what is this guy doing back again? It might be how we might pass by the same homeless person under the bridge every day, right? At some point, they just become part of the landscape. 
the, the paralytic was complicit with his circumstances, and so was the community. They both kind of allowed that he languish. We probably all know a few turtles, right, who might refuse to get up and walk, who don't know how. We might also sometimes behave as turtles toward the larger problems in society. When things are going on that feel out of our control, it is so easy to retract and not engage. We don't know where to step in. The problems feel really big. And so it's easy to give up or to just go on doing what we've always done. I read a story recently recounted by Austin Channing Brown, and she wrote an incredible book recently that I listened to on Audible. But her story inside of the book calls I Am Still Here is about an interracial group of college girls who did a civil rights bus tour. They were paired up, and so each seat contained a white student and a black student, and the idea was to have the young women talk to one another throughout this journey. And after one particular stop, and many of the stops were emotional and hard, but one particular stop was documenting the history of lynching. The tensions were high, and the feelings were strong. And this is what she writes about it. There was no sound as we walked through the exhibit. We could barely breathe, let alone speak. When we climbed back on the bus, all that we heard were sniffles. The emotion was thick. It was as if no time had passed between the generation and the pictures and the ones sitting on that bus. It all felt so real. The first students to break the silence were white. I didn't know this even happened, but it's not my fault. I wasn't there. They reached for anything that could distance themselves from the pain and anger of the moment, anything to ward off the guilt and the shame of past generations, the shock and the devastation. Angry, hurt, and defensive words traveled back and forth and hurled past one another, and the hoped for understanding and compassion was slipping away. One white girl then stood up and exhaled deeply. She said, I don't know what to do with what I've learned. I can't fix your pain, and I can't take it away, but I can see it, and I can work for the rest of my life to make sure your children don't have to experience this pain. Doing nothing is no longer an option for me. She took a step forward in intergenerational healing that begins with a willingness to see. Not to go and fix, but just to see, to be witness to the pain. And this to me is exactly what Jesus does. He sees the man languishing by the pool, where many others might have just walked right past it. Last, a couple weeks ago, when we wrote on cards that Bill passed around to us, the concerns about division and injustice were written on over half the cards submitted. And we compiled, um, it would be interesting just to show that, just the yeah. document. I compiled kind of where they fell. Um, about half concerns were big, world, falling apart, what are we doing? And about half were very personal, my health, my job, security. Those are related, though, right? The problems that we face are huge and weighty and real. Our job toward them is to just deepen our awareness that they exist, to see them, and to take steps that pull toward healing the heart of the world. I think in the process, I heals we. That's how the community becomes whole. Jesus' superpower in my mind is facing pain and seeing what truly is, not shying away from reality. He sees the light inside of even the most hopeless situations. 
I can't get over 38 years this man languished by the pool. And he says, get up and walk. And he walks. So trauma and pain also always hold the possibility for healing. And doing nothing was not an option for Jesus. So um, it's no secret, especially since 9-11, how I have been uh, really concerned about the damaging effects of fundamentalism, all forms of fundamentalism in our world. Political fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism. Um, it stifles. It wants to go back. It doesn't want to stand up. I want to try to speak to that uh, today. Um, because in the harshness, um, I want to be empathetic toward this man mm -hmm. who for 38 years chose not to stand up because standing up is tough. Here's a guy who chose, and you can see this playing out in our culture, both religiously and politically. I mean, we now, li we, we, we now live in a country where uh, there is a United States form of Christianity, mm -hmm. right? This is dangerous. But it's a reality in, in which we, we live, and many people like this man are choosing the security of religious rules rather than stepping into the larger life following the way and teachings of Jesus. And I, I do want to acknowledge that stepping into this larger life is, is really difficult. One of the, the reasons, and certainly not the only reason to be sure, that years ago I turned to psychology and Eastern religion is that psychology teaches us about the ego and about knowing that the ego is not who we are. And Eastern religions teach us that not being led by the ego is the path to enlightenment. Sometime I want to spend some time in here talking about the roles of projection and transference and how they work in our lives because they're very important dynamics to understand. Um, I project a lot onto you. Um, my ego is very insecure. My ego is very insecure. Myself is fine. Hmm. But I'm assuming, this is my projection, that your ego must be insecure too. If mine is, yours must be too. <laughs> it's a secret that we keep from each other. But So this guy goes to Buddha one day and he has flowers in both hands as an offering. And when he arrived in front of the Buddha, the Buddha looked up and smiled at him and said, drop it. And the man realized, oh my goodness, I've brought flowers in my left hand. I should not have done that. This is inappropriate. You don't shake hands with the left hand. You don't touch anybody with your left hand in that culture. Mm. See, so drop the flowers in the left hand. And the Buddha looked up at him and smiled and said, drop it. So he dropped the flowers in the right hand, thinking maybe I should have come empty-handed 
no offering at all. Even though he brought the flowers because that's what enlightenment, the first sign of enlightenment of one of the Buddhist disciples was he held up a lotus flower and said, what is it? So he thought he was honoring the Buddha. <laughs> so after he dropped both flowers, both hands, um, he stood empty-handed before the Buddha who looked up at him and smiled and said, drop it. And the guy said, drop what? <laughs> and Buddha said, drop the one who brought the flowers. Our egos are very insecure. They want clarity, authority, they want control, and sometimes they want these things no matter what. A careful study of religion will reveal over and over and over again that Jesus and his teachings have been a victim of religion. It's a battle that has been fought over and over and over again. Now, I really don't think that anyone who has found what Lawrence Freeman calls Jesus as the teacher within would say that people who are in that grouping that embraces the LBGT plus community are not free to participate in all ways at all levels in the church or in any place. Jesus wouldn't say that. And by the way, that book by Lawrence Freeman is not an easy book to read. Lawrence Freeman is one of our contemporary mystics. He's a Benedictine monk, I think, from Ireland. He's done a lot of extensive writing. You can look him up on, um, this is not my notes. You can, you can look him up on um, the Google Wikipedia and find out about him. But he talks about um, when Jesus asked the, the question, who do you say that I am? And who is the you that answers that question? It's the most important thing. And he says, in finding the Jesus within, you found your way out. Or in finding Buddha mind, if, you want, if you're not comfortable with that language. You can find your way out. So though the Jesus within would not countenance to that division, look at what's dividing the Methodist church today. This very squabble. Now, I want to acknowledge with some empathy for this guy that Stepping into what I call the post-religious freedom of tomorrow is not easy. Now, this man in this story never found the courage to stand up. I, I have recounted several times in this class um, my experience of finding what I think are some of the most powerful words in the English language. They were written by Paul Tillich in a book of his sermons that was published oh, sometime when I was in high school. The book of sermons is called The Courage to Be. Somebody gave the book to my father, and I read it, and wow. Over and over and over, Tillich talks, talks about the courage to be. Courage to be what? Mm -hmm. Courage to be who you are, to be who you truly are, and to stand into to that reality. And, and uh, Tillich was specifically talking about that storyline that I mentioned two or three weeks ago, laying the foundation for this. For this, And that storyline is that we are already accepted. We're already loved. 
We're already in grace. Whatever word you want to use, we don't have to believe anything, do anything. Maybe later you'll want to believe some stuff and do some stuff, but not that's not required to get into that sphere of awareness. But the ego still wants safety and security by following the rules, believing the right stuff. And I just want to be clear, Jesus never, ever, ever taught anything like that. He taught that life is found in loving and that we are set free to love because we are accepted. So uh, I, want to, I want this to be practical to, to you. I want to ask you to ask yourself some questions. Where do you need to grow up? Where do you need to step into life? Jim Hollis says that when he asks this question in retreats that he gives, nobody ever asks, what do you mean? <laughs> Everybody knows. We all know that place in life where we need to go a little further. What fears do we need to confront? And is that fear realistic? Or is it from some earlier time in my development? And perhaps even more importantly, what price will I pay for not growing up? Which leads me to say one other thing about the story, and then I'm going to shut up for a minute. <laughs> um, the signs in the book of signs in the Gospel of John, there are seven of them. We've dealt, this is the third one. The next one, as I said, that we will deal with in two weeks now is the feeding story. They are designed, these sign stories to say that in Jesus this Johannine community found light and life and nurture and joy and community and the writers of the Johannine material that we are looking at are very clear that this light is extinguished by darkness in a world where God has been reduced to rules. Now this is tricky. I taught homiletics in the seminary. I've taught in two seminaries, both Protestant and Roman Catholic. Homiletics is teaching about preaching, about writing sermons. And if you're going to write a sermon, you've got to know the rules of grammar and rhetoric and logic and persuasion and reasoning and all the rules of debate. You've got to know that to write a sermon. To write a good sermon, you've got to break all those rules. <laughs> True. If you're going to play the piano, you've got to know the scales. You've got to know etudes. You've got to practice and practice. If you're going to improvise... You have to break all those rules. But you can't get to improvisation before you do that. And my teaching professor, preaching professor at Union Seminary said, there are three kinds of sermons. There's sermons, good sermons, and damn good sermons. And he said, <laughs> you don't write a damn good sermon without breaking the rules. But you can't write that if you don't know the rules to start with. So if you don't, Get out of the box of rules. You'll never play your own music. 
I've always wanted to learn how to play the cello. The what? The cello. It's my you just got to wrap your legs around it and take it home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's got some good advice from Bill over here. Um, is that true in my mirrors too? Yeah. Okay. Um, the last important message from this story that you just alluded to with the simple questions that you posted are about personal choices. What choices do we make when things get hard, when faced with life? And when faced with that difficulty, will we make choices that lead to an enlarged being or to a constricted one? Both are choices. Everything arises and everything falls away, a Buddhist teaching. Everything from the big to the small, each breath arises and each breath falls away right up until our very last breath. That there is an uncertain end to everything can be motivating or it can be paralyzing. It can make us nihilistic, but it can also make us hopeful fools, <laughs> active participants in this kind of multi-layered symphonic fabric that keeps on and on and on until it doesn't. And something else will rise up in its place too. But whether you are a nihilist or a hopeful, both are part of the fabric. Both are ways of being. We don't have a choice about our physical death. It will happen. We don't even have a choice about all the circumstances of our lives. But we do have a choice about how we participate in life and what we pass on to future generations. These are the choices we make every single day. We would be remiss here not to mention this man. What a, a light in the world. And he, Thich Nhat Hanh, died Friday. If I'm going to guess most of you heard that. And his teachings in early 2020 started us off on talking about interbeing. What does it mean to live in a world that inter-is, where you and I are together to create the we. He brought deeper levels of consciousness and principles of engaged Buddhism to the West. He says, this body of mine will disintegrate, but my actions will continue me. If you think I am only this body, then you have not truly seen me. When you look at my friends, you see my continuation. When you see someone walking with mindfulness and compassion, you know he is my continuation. I don't see why we have to say I will die because I can already see myself in you, in other people, and in future generations. Now, the paralytic upon getting up, it didn't just happen for him. He wasn't all of a sudden walking in the path, right? If he continues walking, he will continue to have lessons to learn, light to step into, the full self to be realized. And similarly, Jesus lives on in us with these teachings, with these consciousness-raising questions. Sanford says that the consciousness-raising question that he asks the paralytic is, what do you want? He asks him, what kind of world do you want to live in? And what choices do you want to make to usher that world forth? We stand in this precipice in small and big ways every single day. Do I decide to fuss at my children or do I decide to take a breath and be patient with them? Right? Do I decide to participate in this great action or do I, do, I, do I decide to stay home? It's sometimes just being pushed to take that first wobbly step forward. We call them 
baby steps. I read this quote recently that says, I love it when people say baby steps to imply that they're being tentative when actually baby steps are these great, unbalanced, wholehearted, enthusiastic, and brave lurches into the unknown. That's my baby boy taking his first step. <laughs> Literally the day he walked. And look at that face. He's not afraid or timid. He's enthusiastic and whole. It is so easy for us to get paralyzed. Thought patterns even can stop us. Our ego patterns can stop us from living an enlarged life. You talk about insecurity. Insecurity is my paralytic. If I believe that I'm not doing it right, I'll shy away. I'll become the turtle. There's so much capturing our attention in the world, and it is hard to step in to all of those things. Many of you, as I said, wrote concerns that were very near to the heart personal health, security, purpose, while others of you wrote about these big societal concerns, the split of our democracy, injustice, poverty, environmental destruction. Any one of these issues could overwhelm us. But I think we're up to the challenge. Recall that the other side of languishing is flourishing. And we can choose to flourish in small and big ways. I'm going to close with Tony Kushner's version of get up and walk. <laughs> He writes, when the supernova comes to get us, we don't want to be disappointed in ourselves. We should hope to be able to say proudly to that angel of death, hello, supernova. We have been expecting you. We know all about you because in our schools, we teach science and not creationism. And so we've been expecting you. Everyone and everyone has been expecting you, except Texas. <laughs> Let's change that, y'all. And we would like to say, supernova, in the moment before we are returned by your protean fire to our previous inchoate state, clouds of incandescent atomic vapor, we'd like to declare that we have tried our best and worked hard to make a good and just and free and peaceful world, a world that is better for our having been here. At least we believe it is. Okay. So um, the Johannine community was in a struggle with the church, if you'll let me put it that way, that birthed them. Mm -hmm. This is another great metaphor here about the importance of leaving home. In the um, lectionary reading for the coming Sunday, uh, Jesus talks about no prophet has honor, a prophet has honor except in his own hometown. And one commentator I read about that says what the teaching implies is you need to get away from your hometown. So that's what's happening. I'm sure there were lots of family conflicts about the positions they took in that synagogue. Jesus is good about stirring up that kind of trouble. In a community where belonging was so important, he'd go down and say, hey, come on, follow me. Leave your father and your mother and follow me. Leave your father's business. Come on, follow me. And they did. And that was a no-no. And these people lived in the brutal heartlessness of the Roman Empire of their time. So um, I mentioned that this parable raises the red flag about the death of Jesus that's coming. And um, we live in a context that is so similar. The Methodist denomination is on this precipice of a split. Um, it seems our country is on a precipice of a split. 
people on both the right and the left are fearful. That's one of the things we have in common. We're scared. We are already in a place that I never, ever, ever imagined that I would be in. Now, some of you are old enough. Some of you are not. I, I, I think I'm the oldest person in the room. You might remember a man by the name of Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. That book was out when I was in high school. It was on the bestseller list for four years. Mm. Unheard of. Shaped the mentality of this country. As a matter of fact, modernism in the beginning of the 20th century was better in every way, every day. And we believe that. That was our ethos. I don't know what nursery rhymes you had read to you when you were little, but I remember the one that was read to me. And then I read it to my kids, the little engine that could. <laughs> I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and he prevailed. Planted a seed. You work hard enough, try long enough, you can get up any hill. And that's a metaphor for this country, right? Mm -hmm. A light, shining light on a hill. Gave us permission to do anything we wanted to do. And it's hard for us to acknowledge that America is for white people. If you're not white, you have to hyphenate your name to be American. It's just a culture. If I have not done so, I just want to be really, really, really clear that American Christianity is not the faith of Jesus. It is not about prosperity and winning and being safe and secure from all alarms, which is the hymn I sang in the Baptist church where I grew up. American Christianity reflects the context in which it was shaped. And truth demands that we live every day keenly aware of, of the impermanence and fragility of ourselves and our constructs. And I'm not saying that we should live in morbidity. Facing his death head on from the beginning, Jesus shows a model of what it means to live honestly and with compassion. Over and over and over again, he and his first followers invited people and invites us to choose faith over fear and to choose stepping into life over religion. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.